you for listening. Thanks, Tim. Okay, let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this part of the scripture. Father, we pray now for you to please send us your spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up our eyes uh, to see and understand and believe what you are teaching us in this portion of the scripture. We thank you for this letter from the Apostle Paul to this ancient church in Philippi, and we pray that it would minister to us as it has ministered to your people for countless centuries now, God. And God, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, spiritually or emotionally, no matter what our week has been like, no matter what happened on the way to church this morning or as we were getting ready, no matter if right now we feel really unsettled and irritated or confused or full of doubt or happy to be here, no matter where we are, God, we ask that today, right now, in the next minutes, you would remind us of what's true, that you made us in your image and therefore humanity is in so many ways beautiful and glorious and wonderful. And yet we've also rebelled against you and sinned and the glory of humanity and of this world has been corrupted and marred in significant ways. But in Jesus, through your love, you are about the business of making all things new. And so will you do that work among us right now? Will you continue the work of making us new and forming us into one people? We need your help for this to happen because we can't do it on our own. And so we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. One thing that the Bible makes clear, uh, whether you're a believer of Jesus or not, if you read the Bible, this is something that I hope will be evident to you, especially in the letters of Paul, is that there may come times in the lives of those who are followers of Christ where our allegiance or our loyalty might be tested. And uh, this week, there was something that happened in the political world, and I, I hesitate even to use this as an illustration, but it was just a perfect example of what I think Paul's getting at in Philippians. There was this, there's this woman who's a, a lawyer, a law professor at the University of Notre Dame. Her name is Amy Barrett, and she was nominated for some circuit court judge position and was going before a congressional committee to testify and give, you know, answers to questions. And at one point in her, in her uh, testimony, she was asked by a United States senator a question that was intended to sort of um, stir up the question of where she is regarding faith. And obviously, as a professor at the University of Notre Dame, Mrs. Barrett is not only a very accomplished scholar, but a very committed Roman Catholic follower of Jesus. And some on the committee did not like that fact at all and wanted to, well, at the very best, they were hesitant to approve her nomination for this court. And one senator at one moment quoted this to Mrs. Barrett in the middle of her hearing. She said, the dogma lives loudly within you. The dogma lives loudly within you, and that's of concern. And multiple congressional people were asking her all kinds of questions about her, how her faith is going to impact various judicial decisions she might make. And I saw that video, you might have seen it this week as well, and here's the first thing I thought, that's crazy that that's happening in the United States. And the second thing I thought was, what a compliment. The dogma lives loudly within you. That's something we would want Jesus to say of us if we're following him at the moment where we meet him. And that's a great example, actually, of what might happen to any one of us as we seek to follow Jesus in a post-Christian world. Our allegiance might at times be tested. Now, the Apostle Paul knew about that. 
And in this part of the letter to the Philippians, that's what he's writing about. These Christians that he's writing to 2,000 years ago who were in the middle of the Roman Empire, a very secular, pagan culture where Christianity was a very, very small, minor sect, they were persecuted. They struggled because they said Jesus is the king and not Caesar. And so one thing Paul does in all of his letters, and we see it here, is remind those young, small churches that persecution is actually not a sign that God has abandoned you. Persecution is actually a sign that you are having an impact for the sake of the gospel. Therefore, stand firm, be strong, keep the faith. That's what we see in this verses in Philippians. So Paul, as we've moved into this letter, has introduced himself. He's writing this letter from a Roman prison. He's sent the letter via Epaphroditus back to the church in Philippi. And he's told them, I'm thankful for you. He's full of joy, even though his circumstances are really bleak. He's prayed for them and told them about the prayer. And then last week in verses 12 through 26, we saw, we saw Paul updating the Philippian congregation about his circumstances. And we saw that even in the midst of his own personal update, Paul is radically committed to the cause of the gospel of Jesus. And he's rejoicing that even in his suffering, even his, in his incarceration, the gospel of Jesus is advancing. That's what we've seen so far. And so in verse 27, where Tim began to read for us, we see Paul transition. He transitions from a personal update to exhortation, to encouraging and really commanding these Christians in the city of Philippi to live in faithfulness, to live with humility, and to live with unity. And really beginning in verse 27 of chapter 1 and going all the way through most of chapter 2, we get really the heart and soul of the letter to the Philippians. And um, we're going to spend the next few weeks here, but for today we're going to just look at verses 27 through 30 and close out chapter 1 and check out Paul's instructions and exhortations for this young church and see how it applies to our lives. So here's the main idea. Okay, you ready? If you haven't been with me so far, now's the time to catch up. Main idea, here's what Paul's saying. Live as citizens of Christ's kingdom by standing together even when it means we're going to suffer as a result. That's the main idea. So if you take away anything, take that. Live as citizens of Christ's kingdom by standing together, even if it means we're going to suffer as a result. Now, I'm going to take that statement and break it into three sections as we move through the text together. Okay, so here we go. Point one, Paul says, live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Look in verse 27. The main command he gives there in the, in the ESV version of the scriptures is, let your manner of life be worthy. And really, everything else he says comes from that main governing command. Now, in the original language that the New Testament was written in, the language of Greek, that's actually one word, let your life, manner of life be worthy. And I usually don't do this, but it's important to do it in this case by telling you what the actual Greek word is. The Greek word is a word called polituomai, and that is a verb that comes from the noun polis, polis. Polis is a Greek word that meant city, so metropolis, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, Annapolis, all those are derivatives of the Greek word polis, which means city. And so this is a verbal form of that noun. So what the command really is, is this. Paul is saying, be good citizens. Be good citizens. You see, ancient people who lived a couple of thousand years ago received their, received their primary identity 
not from their own individual wants and desires, which is how our culture receives our primary identity. Ancient people received their primary identity through the community of which they were a part. So the polis, their community, their city, was of absolutely fundamental importance to who they saw themselves as, as human beings. There's all sorts of interesting illustrations of this from the ancient world. One of my favorites is the Spartans. Any of you guys know the Spartans? The Spartans are awesome. If you're, if you're a dude and you like to read, there's a great book called Gates of Fire. The movie 300 is based on this, and as usual, the book is much better than the movie. That's not just my opinion. That's a fact, by the way. And uh, the book's called Gates of Fire, and it's about the Spartans and the Battle of Thermopylae. And in that book, the Spartan general is this guy named Dionychus, and he's telling his son Alexandros something about what the Spartans are to be thinking about as they go into battle. And here's what he says. Listen to this. He says, never forget, Alexandros, that this body does not belong to us. Thank God it doesn't. If I thought this stuff, my body, was mine, I could not advance a pace into the face of the enemy. But it, that is our body, is not ours. It belongs to the city, the polis, which gives us all we have and demands no less in requital. So that's a great illustration of how ancient people saw their community. It was fundamental and significant to who they saw themselves as. They got their main identity from the community of which they were a part. So when Paul says, be good citizens, when Paul says, be good citizens, he's appealing to something that would have been very natural for ancient people. But he's not saying, be good citizens of Rome or Philippi. He's saying, be good citizens of the community that you are a part of now as a result of the work of the gospel in your lives. Be good citizens of the kingdom of God. Be good citizens of the city of Jesus Christ. Paul's command is this, the Philippian Christians and all of us, if we're Christians, are to give our primary allegiance our primary obligation to another city and to another kingdom. In chapter 3, he says this explicitly. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So, we see something really basic here, just in the very first command that Paul gives in verse 27, about the identity of the Christian, about what it means to be a Christian what it means to be a follower of Christ. Here's what it means. Christians are people who know who the real king is. Christians are those who say, Caesar is not really the king. The president is not really in charge. The emperor is not really in charge. The prime minister does not really rule this world. Jesus is the real king. And his kingdom is the real kingdom. Christianity is about where our allegiance goes first. The whole business of being a Christian is about living by the belief that Jesus is already the true Lord of this world because of his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. Now, most of the world doesn't know this yet, and there's the rub. So the loyal Christian is inevitably out of step with people all around him or all around her. And this will result in misunderstanding and maybe even hostility and persecution. So that's why Paul encourages Christians in this letter to be tenacious, to stand firm, as we will see. So 
here's a really basic idea for us as followers of Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, for you to think about as you consider what it means to be a Christian. None who are a part of Jesus' kingdom should ever feel completely comfortable or completely at home in the kingdoms of this world. Maybe another way to think of it is like this. If you are able to fully identify with any polis of this world, with any political movement or party, by the way, political comes from the same word, polis. And if you're able to fully identify with any party of this world, any movement of this world, any political ideology of this world, you should see that as a sign that your loyalty might be misplaced. We will always be out of step with the powers and the politics of the world. And listen, listen, that's true whether you align with the right or the left or you find yourself somewhere in the middle. It's true if you, you know, let me put it this way. You're not primarily a Texan. Oh, tough. You're not primarily an American. Notice I said Texan first before American. You're not primarily a Texan. You're not primarily an American. You're not primarily a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a capitalist or a socialist or whatever you think you want to be ideologically. You are primarily a Christian. And so the question is this, does your life and do your values reflect your real identity? That's part of what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to consider. It's part of what the Spirit is encouraging you to consider. Live as citizens but not of the kingdoms of this world, live as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, next, Paul tells us how we're supposed to do that. How are we supposed to live as citizens of Jesus, especially when we will find ourselves out of step with and antagonized by those who don't know that Jesus is the real king? How do we live as good citizens? Well, look at verse 27. Paul says, we do it by standing firm in one spirit. And you'll notice there in most of your Bibles that that word spirit is not capitalized. And again, not to critique translations too much, but it should be capitalized because that is a reference to the Holy Spirit, almost certainly. Um, So what Paul's saying here is that the way in which followers of Jesus mature and develop and hold out as citizens in Jesus' kingdom is through the unifying and galvanizing power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. So we, we live as good citizens by standing firm in one spirit. And then Paul explains what that looks like. What does it look like to stand firm in one spirit? Look at the text. He gives us two ways. First, verse 28, or verse 27, we stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we stand in one spirit by striving together, by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. That striving together or contending side by side is a great phrase. You know, it's football season. Did you know that? It's good. We can celebrate that. Even We're not citizens of the Cowboys kingdom. Jesus, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still football season. And uh, one thing that, that idea reminds me of, striving side by side, is an offensive line. You know, in an offensive line, five guys that block the, for the running back or for the quarterback, every guy has to do his job. You have to block the right person, right? But you also have to do it in tandem. So even if you're doing a great job, the guy next to you might make a mistake or you might might not be in lockstep and the quarterback gets sacked or the running back doesn't have a hole to go through. 
Uh, Baylor is a great example of this lately, by the way, of not being in tandem in their offensive line. An offensive line has to work together in tandem to accomplish their job. That's the same sort of image that Paul's getting at here when he talks about what the church is supposed to do. We stand in one spirit by striving together with one another. Christianity is a team sport, not an individual sport. It's football, not golf. There's a lot of bad reasons for golf, but football's much better. That's the point of the text, right? Um, you know, next week the sermon's going to be completely devoted to this idea of how we strive together. But let me just say at this point, at the very least, standing in one spirit by striving together means, it means seeking to put to death uh, what I'll call mean-spirited community, and seeking to put to death quick-tempered theology, okay? These things often create toxic environments in churches. You know, isn't, isn't it sad that Christians are known more for standing against or striving against each other than striving with one another? That's just a fact. And part of the reason is because mean-spirited community and quick-tempered theology all too often characterize our fellowships. We can see mean-spirited community manifesting itself in things like cliques, in gossip, in snide comments, in secret remarks to one group about a person in another group, in grudges, in keeping long records of wrongs, in a refusal to seek forgiveness and to grant forgiveness. That's a way we strive against one another. It's a way we prevent our standing side by side in unity in the fellowship of the Spirit, mean-spirited community. We also do that through quick-tempered theology, and in our particular tribe and tradition, this is far too common. Quick-tempered theology looks like an unduly strident spirit, an unduly strident spirit concerning theological details and distinctives. It's seen in young men and women, but mainly men, who love to argue on blogs. By the way, if you're going to a blog to argue theology, just stop. Stop. If you want to argue about theology on your blog or on someone else's blog or in person, you know, that can be helpful, but probably it's not. And I say this out of experience. Um, that's one thing it looks like. It looks, up, it looks like putting up far too many theological and doctrinal barriers for a person to have a meaningful connection in a church. It looks like majoring on what is minor as opposed to majoring on what is major in our doctrinal life together. That's a way in which we strive against one another rather than strive together. And no church can long stand in one spirit where that sort of culture is nurtured or tolerated. So we must regularly be confessing our sins in these areas, repenting of mean-spirited community, repenting of our quick-tempered theological grids and spectrums and mindsets. We stand in one spirit by striving together, not against each other. And secondly, verse 28, Paul says, We also stand in one spirit by not being frightened in anything by your opponents. You see that there in verse 28? Now in Philippi, the letter that this, that the church this letter is written to, there was major opposition. If you know anything about Paul's experience planting the church there, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. 
Paul, because he converted a lot of people through his preaching ministry, actually served to have a negative economic impact on the city. In particular, Acts 16 tells us that he converted this woman who was a fortune teller, and the men who were making a lot of profit off of this woman's fortune-telling ability got really mad, and they threw Paul and Silas into prison and caused an uproar in the whole town. Paul and Silas were eventually released because they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen and that they had imprisoned him unjustly as a citizen, and they left and went to Thessalonica. But from the very beginning, the point is, there had been persecution, there had been strife, there had been antagonism in the Philippian church. There's reason for these Christians to be frightened, in other words. And Paul's saying that you stand firm in one spirit by not being intimidated, by not being frightened when people oppose you because of your decision to follow Jesus as the king. Um, one New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright tells a story about when he was seven years old, he was walking down a sidewalk with his aunt. And as he and his aunt are walking down the sidewalk, this huge dog comes barreling towards them. And N.T. Wright's scared of dogs as a seven-year-old because the year before he had been, you know, snipped by a little dog, completely unprovoked. And so he's got this dread of dogs. And his aunt, as she's walking by 17-year-old, her seven-year-old seven nephew, you know, senses him begin to sort of freeze up. And so she goes down to his ear and she whispers, don't let it see that you're afraid. Don't let it see that you're afraid. So he swallowed his fear, and he walked on beside his aunt. And the dog, you know, as dogs do, came to a stop and nosed all around them and then set off back down where it come from because the dog was only inquisitive, right? But if it had known that Wright, as a boy, was ready to run away, the dog would have thought it was a game and chased him, and things could have really gotten ugly <laughs> at that point. And that's, that's kind of what Paul's saying here. He's saying, don't let them see that you're afraid. Now, of course, those who oppose the gospel of Jesus and who are intimidating Christians are much more subtle and dangerous than long do large dogs. And throughout history and even today, there are those who are determined to stamp out Christianity and will use every trick in the book to do so. In the Mediterranean world of the first century and in some parts of the world today, like China and the Sudan, this happens through overt persecution and hostility. In the post-Christian West where we live, this more often happens through skepticism and cynicism, which comes at us constantly in extremely powerful cultural grids like the media and academia and other ways. And so it's easier said than done, right, to say don't be frightened or intimidated by those who oppose you. And, and so Paul, in a sense, is saying, how is it that we're not going to be afraid? You stand firm in one spirit by striving side by side together, and you stand firm in one spirit by not being frightened. Well, how can we not be frightened when hostility is mounting against us? And that's where Paul goes next as he closes this section. We see that he says, live as Christ's citizens, citizens of Christ's kingdom by standing together even when we will suffer as a result. Now, the Philippians were afraid. The Philippians were being opposed. They were having a rough go of it in following Jesus as a minority in an increasingly hostile culture. So Paul tells them, stand firm in the spirit, live as good citizens, even when we'll suffer. Now, how can Paul say that? 
He can say that because he knows from personal experience and from what the Spirit has revealed to him, he knows that suffering has a purpose. That's what we see in these verses. Now, I want you to hear this. Suffering is bad. Suffering should not exist. Suffering exists as a result of sin and the fall. Suffering is not something we should celebrate, but suffering is purposeful. And it's even something that Paul says here we can be grateful for because of the ways in which God uses suffering to grow his church into maturity. Just as a real brief aside, the kind of suffering Paul's talking about here is suffering specifically because you profess Jesus. You know, sometimes we suffer just because we were idiots and did something stupid. And sometimes we suffer for unknown ways in God's inscrutable counsel. We don't know why. And then there's other times in which we suffer specifically because we're seeking to live faithful lives as Christians in a fallen world. And that's the kind of suffering that Paul is referring to in these last couple of verses. It's suffering that stems directly out of our Christian conviction and lifestyle. And Paul says that that kind of suffering is something, verse 29, that has been granted or gifted, gifted as a present to the church by God. How can Paul say that? He can say that because, well, first of all, suffering is a sign that we're on the right side. Look at what he says there in verse 29. It's in or verse 28. When you are intimidated and frightened by your opponents, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and all of this comes from God. Here's the sequence. This has always been the sequence and will be the sequence for followers of Jesus until he returns. Wherever Christians will live as they ought to live in this world where they will live righteous lives and aggressively seek to spread the gospel with love and wisdom, in that place there will be, in some form or another, recompense and persecution because of it. That's the sequence. This is true for all Christians. If you bear witness for Jesus, you are going to be persecuted. Jesus says that. He says, they persecuted me, they hated me, and they will hate you also. And we see it again and again and again in the scriptures. Now, it's not always going to be physical persecution as it was in Paul's day, but you will suffer persecution if you're seeking to live faithfully nevertheless. It's a natural result of your confession of faith in Jesus. And Paul says here that it is actually a proof. It's an omen. It's a token of your salvation. When that happens, it's evidence of the supernatural power of God at work in your life when you're having a hard time because you're seeking to follow Jesus. When you are suffering because you're trying to be faithful, that is not a sign that God has forgotten and abandoned you. That's what, not what Paul says. Paul sides, says that is a sign of your salvation. That's a sign that God is at work. Listen, listen. Perhaps... As our culture slides further into the sort of antagonistic posture in which the New Testament was written, maybe some of you who have government jobs will lose your jobs. Or maybe some of you that have jobs in a, a major corporation will lose your jobs because of your ethical stance as a Christian. That might happen. That's a sign of your salvation, Paul says. That's from God. Some of you, undoubtedly, if you're seeking to faithfully follow Jesus, maybe you were converted to faith later in life, some of us have had to lose 
close family relationships. Some of us have had friendships wrecked in real ways and hurtful ways and painful ways because we've decided to follow Jesus and do our best to live a life of faith and repentance. What this text is saying is that that is from God. That is a sign of your salvation. Some of you might not get promoted or recognized in your particular field. It might be academia. It might be the arts. It might be some other field because you are a follower of Jesus. This text tells you that that is a sign of your salvation. That's from God. The first reason your suffering is purposeful is because your suffering is a sign that God is actually with you and not against you. Think about it. Jesus suffered. Jesus was murdered. Was God not with Jesus? No, Jesus was the most spirit-filled, spirit-led man who ever lived. So if it was true of Jesus, then to a lesser degree, it will undoubtedly be true of the people of Jesus. And then finally, the second reason that suffering is actually called by Paul here a gift, suffering because of the gospel, is because it's a way we grow in solidarity with and a way we grow in love for Jesus himself. And, and Paul puts this really starkly. Look there in verse 29. He says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. What Paul says there is that your suffering in Christ is just as much as a gift from God to you as your faith in Christ. He correlates the two. The reason you believe, the reason you, if you're a believer, have followed Jesus is because God gifted that to you. It's not because you were like somehow better than people that don't believe. It's because God gave you through the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to do that as a gift. And now he says, suffering is, for the sake of the gospel, is the same. It's another gift from God. And it's a gift because in our suffering, we connect with Jesus in his suffering. We're going to talk more about this as we move through Philippians, but... God uses suffering purposefully to, to grow and to strengthen our connection, our vital living union to Jesus himself. And, and here's how that happens. That happens because in our suffering, listen, and really only in our suffering, only through our suffering can we more deeply be captured by and can more deeply fall in love with the Jesus who suffered freely and willingly for us. It was through suffering and pain that Jesus showed us, in the deepest way possible, the infinite depths of his grace and love for sinners. In Christ's suffering, lawbreakers are forgiven. The law is fulfilled. In Christ's death, death itself is ended. Only through Jesus' suffering could sin be atoned for. It was, the, it was the only way to end evil without ending us. And so in our own suffering, we are really, like vitally, more joined to Jesus who suffered for us. In suffering, you see, we really learn. We really learn that the way to freedom, we learn that the way to life, the way to joy, the way to hope is through, it's through suffering. It's through loss. It's through sorrow. The way up is to go down. So we can suffer with Christ when we embrace the full benefits of Christ's suffering for us in our place. So much of this is mysterious, and we'll reflect on it more in coming weeks. But somehow, somehow God uses 
the persecution, the oppression, the pain, the heartache, and the darkness that we go through in life because we've become followers of Jesus, God uses that to help us more and more be like Jesus, love Jesus, experience and know the grace of Jesus. Someone who knew a lot about this is a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you might have heard of her. Elizabeth was a missionary along with her husband Jim in the early 70s to a very remote tribe of Indians in South America called the Aka Indian tribe. And no one had ever reached these people. They were very fierce. And indeed, very early on in their missionary experience, Elizabeth's husband Jim, along with three other missionaries, were speared to death by the very Indians that they were seeking to reach with the gospel. And yet, Elizabeth continued on with her 10-month-old daughter and eventually became a friend of this tribe and had great fruitfulness in her missionary work with them and later in life wrote many, many books that have so benefited the church of Jesus. She knew something about suffering and how suffering can be purposeful and redemptive. And um, as a result of that experience, she wrote in one of her books, this book is called Strange Ashes, she wrote this. I just want to close with this and let you listen to it. Here's what she writes. To be a follower of the crucified means, sooner or later, a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. The great symbol of Christianity means sacrifice. And no one who calls himself a Christian can evade this stark fact. But of one thing I am perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. So leave it all in the hands that were wounded for you. Listen, when you can believe, like really believe deep down, that even in your suffering, even in your suffering, God is at work in your life showing you his grace and his love, then, and only then really, will we be able to live as good citizens in a world that's increasingly hostile and stand firm arm in arm with one another. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Thank you, God, that you have shown us your love in the gospel of Jesus, that in his life and death and burial and resurrection, he has made the way open for rebels and lawbreakers to be pardoned and to come back into his family. And we thank you that you have told that story to us and indeed made us a part of that great gospel story. And Lord, as those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus and live a life of faith, Sometimes it's hard, and indeed the scriptures tell us here and in many places that we will indeed experience opposition because of it. And so we pray that we would be a people who live as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus and are able to stand in one spirit together, even when we face opposition, even when we face suffering, because your story never ends in ashes, God. Help us to remember that when we are experiencing hardship. Help us to believe that, not just when things are going poorly, but also when things are going well, when we're more and more tempted to rely on ourselves. God, give us a, an end to our own self-reliance and help us to trust you alone. God, we need your help to do that. And so we ask it of you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. The rest of our gathering this morning is an opportunity, various opportunities for you to respond to the good news of the gospel. Whether your life's going great right now or whether you've experienced hardship this week, Jesus invites you and draws you to himself. And one of the ways he does that is through inviting you to confess your sin and neediness to him and then receive his pardon. And so we do that when we're gathered in worship each week. We confess our sin out loud 
not to be like morbidly introspective, but to remember what's true, that we actually have done things that are bad and have failed to do things that are good, and we've turned away from God. All of us have done that. And so we need his forgiving grace, and we need to remember that he gives it to us in abundance. And so what we're going to do is pray this confession of sin out loud together. It's right here behind me on the wall, and I would invite you to please join me. Let's confess our sin. God of glory, you sent Jesus among us as the light of the world to reveal your love for us and to redeem us as a people who walk in your light. But we have obscured the glory of your presence within us by sinning in thought, word, and deed. We have chosen to walk in the darkness instead of your light. In your mercy, fill us again with your spirit so that forgiven and renewed, we may show forth the same glory that shines fully in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hear this good news from Hebrews. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.